Ah, good old pesticides. As an agri-food historian, I actually got to enjoy a whole seminar just on the history of pesticides. And let me tell you, it's shady and super interesting. So today we discuss the world according to Monsanto, pollution, corruption, and the control of our food supply. I I just got goosebumps uh, saying this. (laughs) What a book title. Find out about the world's most popular pesticide and about the world's most evil company, Monsanto. Well, according to top tens, I didn't make that up. French TV journalist and documentary filmmaker Marie-Monique Robin wrote the book. She generally issues books and documentary films together on the topic she investigates. Oh, and really, really big news. Red to Green just had its three-year anniversary. Yep, that's right. Three years ago, the first episode was launched. Insane. It's been such a journey. And to celebrate this, I finally, finally, finally made a Patreon account where you can support Red to Green with a monthly membership, where you can connect with others from the community and get completely exclusive content. For example, for this episode, I provide my top highlights of the book. So literally, it's all the most important quotes from the book where I think you have to read this. This is insane with the page numbers and everything underlined. It looks like it's the most confidential secret document. (laughs) And you can get it on the Patreon page so you can go to patreon.com slash red to green and you'll find options to become a Patreon, a member. Even if it's a small donation, it really means the world. And I'm also looking forward to connect with you directly on patreon.com slash red to green. All the sources and links are also provided in the show notes and also on an article on our website. To round it off, I will summarize the key takeaways for you, so listen till the end. I'm joined by Frank Alexander Kühne, my wonderful co-host. He is the managing director of the Adalbert Raps Foundation and also part of the Raps GmbH, an herb and spice producer. The world according to Monsanto. Let's jump right in. Red to Green is the most in-depth podcast on food sustainability. And in this season seven, we discuss key takeaways from books on the food system. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt, and I'm joined by my co-host, Frank Kühner. Ah, Today is a special episode. The time has come. It's the first episode where I ever have to add a disclaimer because I'm seriously worried. (laughs) So let's get this over with. The podcast and article represent the personal opinions and interpretations of the participants. The statements may be exaggerated for entertainment and or comedic purposes. Every effort has been made to ensure the accuracy and reliability of the information presented per the cited sources on the website. However, the participants do not guarantee the completeness or timeliness of the information. Readers are encouraged to verify the information presented and conduct their own research independently. The participants acknowledge that buyer crop science and or other parties involved have the right to alternative interpretations of matters discussed. Thank you. Marina, that's just the book you were looking for. I was thinking so much about your passion for true crime. There you have it. And I'm convinced Monsanto Uh, is guilty. 
podcast closed, case closed. <laughs> we can move on. That's a fantastic book. Yeah. I'm not making this up, you know, but like it's also No, you don't. That's the shocking part here, yeah. yeah. It's like even I have to admit, okay, there's clearly something going wrong here. <laughs> I, I do admit that. So What exactly is going wrong? According to the book by Robin, Monsanto was involved in the production of PCBs, highly carcinogenic chemical compounds formerly used in industrial and consumer products before they were banned. People and ecosystems surrounding the closed industrial sites are still suffering from the long-term effects, detailed in the book Seed Money. And the company also spearheaded bovine growth hormones. Bovine growth hormones are supposed to increase the speed at which cattle grow. They have been linked to several negative health effects in cows. It can increase the incidence of mastitis, a painful udder infection, which leads to the need to increase antibiotic use. Cows treated with BGH are also more prone to developing lameness and reproductive problems. Due to animal and possibly here and there also human health concerns, BGH is banned in several countries, including the European Union, Canada and some other nations, but not in the US. Apart from that, there are many other topics, including lawsuits against farmers and the harassment of scientists. Possibly you have heard about Monsanto in those contexts. But Monsanto does not exist as an entity anymore. It was acquired by Bayer in 2018. Bayer is a multinational pharmaceutical and chemical company based in Germany. The acquisition led to a new company known as Bayer Crop Science. And it certainly made a few people concerned that an agrochemical producer is bought by a pharmaceutical company because... Do I even need to describe why that somehow seems wrong? <laughs> In this episode, we will focus on Roundup, the pesticide. In 1974, Monsanto brought glyphosate to the market under the trade name Roundup. While glyphosate is the active ingredient, 50 to 75% of the product is made up of what is called inert ingredients. Those support the permeation into the plant body and roots. Inert ingredients do not need to be disclosed on the ingredient label because they are considered trade secrets, which makes it really challenging to regulate them. And at this point, I just have to wonder, imagine you have this pesticide bottle and then 50 to 75% of its ingredients don't have to be listed. This information comes from a separate study, not directly from the book, again, linked in the article on the website. I think one of the most important parts for me is to clarify that glyphosate is not Roundup. So Roundup, it's a glyphosate-based herbicide. Glyphosate is the active ingredient, supposedly, and then there's a list of inert ingredients. Like trade the carriers, secrets. yeah, they don't have a function yeah. by itself. Surfactants, for example, they because... Glyphosate alone cannot actually have this effect. You need something that really helps it to reach into the roots, into the plant. And the way that it works is it interferes with an important enzyme in the plant system, right? But what I find the most worrying is that all of the regulation is around glyphosate. But that's mm -hmm. according to Seralini in a study from 2012. It's actually one of the least harmful ingredients. Only in combination with these kind of delivery systems, they get really harmful. 
Yeah, and there are also like other things that are considered inert, like arsenic, which is another very toxic pesticide, which gets brushed away. Oh, yeah, sure. It's fine. But I think the discussion, you bring up that point in our pre-discussion for the podcast as well. You bring that up, like glyphosate is not actually the, the most critical part in Roundup, but you have to look in general onto the product Roundup. And with all its different elements, it's the one harming the environment. And what you p could perhaps see, and which is kind of explained the book, is speaking of uh, from a Monsanto perspective, if you can't fight the discussion you're having on a subject, you try to dilute it or to, how do you say that, like to push it away from you. So you're not discussing your branded product Roundup, you're discussing an element of Roundup, an ingredient yeah. of Roundup. And you're discussing glyphosate suddenly and you're actually protecting your brand. And from our discussion and from reading the book, I was wondering, is that intentional from Monsanto to actually pr protect its branded product? I, my assumption would be yes. Yeah. So this to be that. Yeah. So let's say to back paddle a little bit, Roundup has benefits, right? So I, that's something that I think we need to acknowledge. So it is extremely potent. It just kills whatever kind of weed. It used to do that. Now there's a lot of resistance that comes from the overuse of Roundup because it was just being, especially with GMOs, that are resistant to Roundup. You can just spray it, not just before or after harvest in between, but throughout the entire crop cycle. However, all of the different pesticides have their issues. <laughs> so that's something that, okay, you cannot compare Roundup to air in a large-scale production because oftentimes there is the necessity to have some kind of pesticide. So there are pros. However, what comes up is just that it has been marketed, and I quote, the product description read, used according to directions, Roundup poses no risk to people, animals, or the environment. Yeah, I love that, the, that it's biodegradable. <laughs> <laughs> Respects sounds... the environment, 100% biodegradable, biodegradable. leaves no residues. Yeah. <laughs> there you Biodegrades go. in your World body. solution is found. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's shocking. They do something, they get fined for it, which is a tiny amount. Tiny amount. Like, they had 20 million on advertisements in the French TV system, like around like, the end of the 20th century to promote Roundup. And then they were saying, it's so safe. They had all these advertisements showing kids playing on these fields, alluding to it being biodegradable, great for the environment, completely harmless, and even saying that it's as safe as salt. And, and of course, that's not true. So, so they were fined like 75K. <laughs> Yeah, which is really good. Yeah. But they were fined on false commercial, like they put false information in their commercials. But that's a structural problem. It seems to be there's no law protecting our environment in a way that people harming our environment are being made responsible for that. Yeah, no. It, that seems to be a, the reappearing pattern here. Somebody's throwing something into the environment. It will stay around. It will harm animal, people, water, anything like that. Mm. And it's not going to be fined. This whole history of Monsanto was the first mm. crucial piece of information I took out of the book. Said, shit, sorry for the word. That was going on for quite a dare while. dare you. <laughs> <laughs> Do I remember correctly? I think like even Roundup has a history and several generations of developments. Because from my understanding, there was the first generation of Roundup was, which was not linked to GMO. And over time, they developed an even more complex combination that a Roundup was like linked to a certain crop and a certain designed GMO, a seed. So it was even more potent in a way to protect the seed. 
and to protect the yield of the crop you wanted to grow, right? So Monsanto, they had lots of issues with the previous pesticides that they had. For example, they were involved in Agent Orange and DDT production, and those were banned in the 70s Hmm. and 80s. So they needed a replacement and they came across glyphosate, which is the base ingredient for Roundup. And that was, according to a different book called Seed Money, like the invention of penicillin, just massive, like really big. However, their patent would run out around the year 2000. So before that patent was running out, they were starting to ramp up advertisements But already in the 80s, they were investing heavily into the development of herbicide-resistant plants. Because it's not like you need a different herbicide for it, but it's like a combination package that's so strong. So if you have GMOs, which are resistant to glyphosate, they can be sprayed the entire time and everything dies. (laughs) But your plant. Again, we can link to... Our research, our comments from the book, my own research in this field. What is worrisome is that, well, if you have the combination of GMOs and Roundup, you, of course, have way higher Roundup residues because it's sprayed directly on the plant. Hmm. And a lot of the studies in this field, they don't address this. This is a very good opportunity to point out the importance of independent research. And independent research needs independent funding. The Adalbert Raps Foundation belongs, as Frank told me, to the German people, and it offers grants for food science research that is focused on sustainability. That can be in alternative proteins, food waste, biotech, all of the topics that we have covered on Red to Green, and anything else beyond that, that can help practically improve our food system. Located in Germany, they do fund a lot of research in Europe, but it is also possible to apply if you're outside of Europe. I was really surprised, I must say, when I asked Frank about how the foundation is funded. And he said that the company, the urban spice producer, Raps, is investing 25% of its profit into the foundation and has been for many, many, many years. This is exceptionally high. And the reason is that the founder of the company, before he died from Parkinson's, decided that the company has to do that, to invest it back into the local society with different social projects, but also into research. So this is really a hot tip. The Adalbert Raps Foundation is pretty unique in terms of how much budget they have to fund scientific research. The foundation can only sponsor universities or research institutions. So if you are a startup founder, you would then work with a research institution on a topic that relates to your business, for example, and benefit from having the insights, but not having to fund the research yourself. Just Google the Adalbert Raps Foundation or follow the link in the comments to find out more. You can also just directly reach out to Frank by typing Frank Alexander Kuhne into LinkedIn. Kuhne is maybe a little bit tricky to to write. It's K-U-E. Wait a minute, I I got confused as well. Maybe if you look for Frank Alexander K something, you'll already find him. (laughs) And with that, back to the episode. 
why is it called the world according to Monsanto? Is it because she looks a lot to the studies Monsanto published and discusses then different opinions about those? Why? No, I think it's more about the strength and the sharpness with which such a big corporation can steer public debate. So, yeah, yeah. On well, so like many they, they have their mindset and that's what they're going to show the world. So according to our mindset, that's the way it should work and that's okay. Trust me or believe me. Yeah, but even further. So first of all, like a lot of these techniques are not just Monsanto. A lot of other companies, tobacco companies use similar techniques. Across industries, you can see corporations using similar methods. And there's actually an overview that we can also attach in our additional information. It's something that I looked up for tobacco companies once upon a time. And it's an overview of ways in which they change the debate doing, for example, media manipulation, using public relations where they frame the issue, which is exactly this topic of, oh, we are going to talk about glyphosate, not Roundup, then creating the illusion of support. Oh, yeah, we want to engage in making everything safe, lobbying and legislative strategy, which is also definitely uh, there. Harassment, harassment, especially of journalists who are speaking out against it, or even like book publishers are afraid of publishing books against Monsanto. And undermining science, major one. One of the things that made me the most suspicious years ago was when I was looking into the topic and there was a science researcher called MyLab, which is like a German science reporter. And she said, well, there are just very few studies on this. And I said, how is that possible? Because this is the world's number one herbicide. It's <laughs> not possible. Like why? <laughs> Something is wrong. And in this case, The world according to Monsanto also means to me, like, literally, if you want to make up your mind based on the studies that are out there, the issue is that the entire basis of studies is also influenced by Monsanto. Hmm. Like, which ones are out there and which ones aren't. And the second part of this sentence is even more important. We decided to split up the topic and cover Monsanto's influence on scientists in the next episode. It will be a really, really good episode, so definitely subscribe to Stay in the Loop. Yeah, but how would you evaluate this? I mean, that you read the book and it's shocking how unethical, unhinged, you see, I'm, I'm really missing the words to properly describe it, but... I'm a strong believer as an industry guy that there's something like a moral position or, and I still believe not everything needs to be regulated and not everything needs to be put into a law. People will still know what to do and what is the right mm-hmm. thing to do. <laughs> okay. That, <laughs> Marina is, is it, like she's, she's, she's under the table now and, and laughing about my... <laughs> my my optimistic worldview and naive worldview but like that's my attitude yeah i'm a believer in general in the good of the people it's not in monsanto come on guys like all the examples of a decade she brings up and explains like samples disappeared studies were bought out studies were influenced people in crucial regulatory institutions in the United States and in Europe were influenced or bought. It's a never-ending story of well, yes. what's happening. Yes. And when I was prepping my talk here on our podcast, I actually asked, why did they never actually get proper sentence? I mean, this company exists for the last six to 70 years. They're still there. They've mm. been bought by buyer and they're still there. So it's really something which I don't understand. 
Yeah. And the other thing, and, and you brought that up at another point already, is it's part of one of the biggest companies in our food supply chain now. Like I think they, they were, were the six biggest companies 10 or 15 years ago. And they have been merged together to three biggest companies. Like they have such a hefty impact on our food supply chain, which is worrisome. You actually get worried about the way do they do good. Yeah. I mean, Google, do Google deleted the, the fame, we do good. Was it that one? What was the phrase of um, Google? Yeah. Don't be evil is their don't tagline. Don't be evil. Which doesn't so mean do, do be good, yeah, but still, yeah, and Monsanto seems to be quite Look, evil. I think Monsanto would benefit from a don't be evil, frankly. Uh, <laughs> Maureen, <laughs> are, are we actually protected against any suing from Monsanto here when we're going to podcast that and then publish? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, what are you guys saying? You know, I have an understanding here. Well, we have been reading the book from, from Marie Monique just- Robin, yeah. We are discussing the book. We're just We're discussing, discussing our opinion on the book. Exactly. Uh, everything. It's our Maybe opinion. we'll we'll put a disclaimer. Good <laughs> <laughs> picture. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing that most worries me is that all of the startups, and it really also changed the way that I look at any of the startups that I featured. Let's say the founders have good intentions. Let's say they are doing it with good, proper scientific rigor and as well as they can, but then they're bought and then they're bought again. And at some point, they're part of a huge agribusiness that has a history of sort of not doing things properly. (laughs) Yeah, that is not good. (laughs) So I have found myself feeling very conflicted about this. And I feel much more understanding for people who are highly critical of cellular agriculture. And part of the issue that she also describes in the book is that in politics, there was this strong pro-biotech movement because there's lots of money in it for also the American government that, according to the book, really was after that. And the USDA was setting its goal as supporting the biotech industry. But this whole culture of go, 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 and everybody who is critical of this is an anti-GMO lunatic. And if you're questioning this, then you're just hindering progress and you're hindering Mm. the betterment of humanity. I'm wondering, maybe we are into the same kind of thought patterns and traps and the kind of echo chamber that this has been in. I don't think people who work now to buy our crop science, most, many of them are from Monsanto, by the way. It's not like they were all fired. Most of these executives are still now working at Bayer. I don't think they believe of themselves as evil. No, they definitely. I'm pretty sure they think it's the best intention. Absolutely. And I think we're going to get to the point like about what kind of food system do we need to feed the world with 9 billion people. And I think products like Roundup are a crucial part of that food system yeah, because they enable us to to increase the yield. They enable us to secure the yield. And surely it's a question of, of the amount of the poison you're using and not to use it, uh, not at all. You know what this reminds me of? Not no. like this whole like, 
<laughs> Reminds me of this like Tony Robbins motivational speeches of you live not to the level of your goals, but to the level of your standards. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I have the theory that literally the healthfulness of our kind of pesticides that we use and their quality is based on what is accepted, right? Because there used to be uh, DDT in use and Agent Orange in use. And then they were like, oh, no, this is way too toxic. So we're going to ban it. And companies come up with stuff that is supposedly better, hopefully, somehow. The issue is, of course, that most of these ways in which pesticides are being tested is not really reliable because it's all company-funded studies and there's very little interest and budget to have independent research. And actually, she also mentioned that the FDA or the USDA had to release lots of its internal papers, I suppose, due to legal battle, where they were accused of being too laissez-faire and not regulating enough. Mm. So I, at some point, I would love to look into the FDA papers <laughs> and take <laughs> <dig> for stuff. <laughs> And I think with the last book we discussed, Food Politics, they had, she had the principle of the revolving door. Yes. That comes up in the Monsanto book as, again, that people from Monsanto changed to the FDA and then changed the back time. or the FSA and changed back. So the revolving door appeared in this whole scandal. Those scandals, because there's several scandals here, that was a typical tool being used. The revolving door describes the phenomenon when executives become part of the regulatory arm of the industry. Let's say it could be scientific journals that are supposed to be independent. It could be um, the agencies in charge of regulating food safety and approval. The revolving door means that eventually these executives return back to the companies. So let's say somebody is at Monsanto, then works at the USDA, and after a couple of years uh, with a good salary increase, comes back to Monsanto. And the big worry is that actually throughout that entire time, the person was part of the agency with a certain agenda to influence internal politics and decision making in favor of their, again, eventual employer. We explained this and other techniques of influencing politics in the last episode. So if you're interested, check out episode 7.6. What I took out of the book is a really an understanding of this kind of the necessity of an independent science. Yeah? Like we have to enable scientists to be free in their opinion and to research what they want to research. Yeah? And there needs to be funds for toxicology. For that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I know that from our foundation work that Drittmittel, the third party financing is a crucial element. I mean, we're sitting as a foundation, we're sitting with scientists together and we're discussing possible projects. Now, we're not influencing what, what the outcome will be, but because we're giving the money as a third party, they actually are able to do their research. So there's quite a high quota they have to, even in Germany, to achieve so that they're able to do their studies they want to do and to research the matter they want to research. And did you ever have any kind of conflict of interest the study came out that your foundation funded I, and you I, were like oh I, I neither can deny nor 
I will consult with my lawyer. I have to consult with my lawyer. No, what is the other famous phrase I said? I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> no, no, joke, joke aside. No, we actually never actually had anything like that. I, like, I'm really thinking about that. But no, there was never actually, because our research, I think there are two types of research project, which is interesting to understand. There's those research projects which are somehow linked to our industry, to a certain product, technology, process, ingredient, application. Mm. And there's the other side, which is actually a positive version of what Monsanto did. Sometimes we discover in our work issues in the production of our food where we are getting concerned about this is harming the consumer or that's an issue nobody actually has ever looked into. So then we go out and then we cooperate with other food industry companies, sometimes even the competition, and we fund scientists to actually do that kind of research. The standard against I try to judge my own opinions or the influence I have in these things is, would I be willing to feed that to, or to give that to my own children? And, and then I think it's easy to say then or to conclude, you try to make it as safe as possible for anyone, specifically for your own children. So that is my guideline, at least on these kind of discussions and really difficult issues sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Whatever we are discussing, that's most likely also applicable to other kind of glyphosate-based pesticides, right? Pesticides, We're just and more than using more. Roundup as the most well-known brand. But at the same time, it doesn't make sense to reduce one's vegetable consumption food consumption for the sake of avoiding pesticides. It's like my accountant was like, it doesn't make sense to try to earn less money to save taxes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. It's not helping you. you know? So, of course, somehow pesticide residues are mostly in our head, like in terms of fresh produce. But of course you have them in processed foods. And actually it's more intense because you can wash off your apple but you cannot wash off your cupcake or it will be not so nice <laughs> yeah <laughs> but soggy. come on like we're processing spices and herbs and obviously there are pesticides being used and other fungicides and so on, so on. there are levels do you wash your herbs no, no, we <laughs> no we actually we don't wash our herbs because that would because they dry that would destroy them but we check very intensely for pesticides level and because there are legal levels, we're allowed to use them and we're not allowed to use them. And obviously what we do is we send them back or we don't use them. Um, what I also find interesting though is even if you are in these legal limits, what if the legal limits are fraudulent? And that's a really interesting part that she discusses on page 77 till 78, 79. So she discusses the process of approval of pesticides in the European Union, which globally is one of the hardest places to get your stuff approved. Right? In other words, to make the absurdity of the process clear, it is a known substance that is toxic for mammals, and they look for the calculated dose that can be inflicted on mammals daily before they fall ill or even die. Then the data is extrapolated to people but how do you know that the dose calculated for a rat or a rabbit will protect us effectively from being poisoned? Well, you cannot poison people eventually, right? That's an ethical issue where I think, well, what else are you supposed to do, right? The accumulation and interaction amongst these various toxic substances that we ingest every day is not taken no. into account. Yeah. You take a 
kind of medication, they always say, well, it could have potential side effects in combination with taking this or this and an asthma inhaler or some kind of antibiotic. And then you also have food additives and food coloring agents and preservatives, which may also have their effect in combination. And the main issue is that all of these are called LADD, lowest acceptable daily doses, are based on the studies conducted just by manufacturers to sell their products, who want to sell their products. So, and anyone who there's like a thing, of course, there's like a saying, saying, don't trust any statistic that you haven't faked yourself, right? <laughs> uh, so again, same issue that I had. I think I was wrong asking people who sell a product, who do a startup to critically evaluate their technologies. It's the wrong person to, yeah, ask. to ask. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. it's the wrong company to ask to evaluate a pesticide critically if that's the company that sells it <laughs> and that has just spent like several millions dollars to develop it in in the book she mentions so many people who have wrecked their career <laughs> as researchers because they published critical studies on um, anything on that monsanto, monsanto does yeah. be that gmos or, or roundup they've completely yeah. wrecked their reputation People who are writing books like this, I would love to talk to her and ask her how many harassment letters she gets. <laughs> like, I was like, I'm worried about your safety. You know? <laughs> Should we actually reach out to all the authors at one point and ask them, listen, guys, we do this podcast. We discussed your book. We ramp rambled about it. Yeah, they can, if they want, add a comment on our Come. comment. <laughs> <laughs> what a nonsense. They didn't understand the book. <laughs> Did they really read it? <laughs> Who are these people? Lunatics. <laughs> <laughs> well, those are your readers. Yeah. <laughs> People like Marina and Frank are the readers of your books. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why do you what? write books that attract such lunatics? <laughs> uh, okay. Well, is there anything important we have missed? Again, with all these books we have read, perhaps that's my business attitude, but I always wonder, what are we going to do about that? What is the next step? Yeah, she describes the whole scandal and everybody got overexcited and said, oh, how is, like myself, like, how is that possible? How is that even yeah, possible? Yeah. But I tend to say then, okay, I understood the problem you're describing here. What's the solution? I still miss that in the book. And I miss that in the food politics books. And I miss that in, in all the other books when they were criticizing the food system. Actually, mostly all the books that really analyze the system, I guess they are, <laughs> they're all depressed. <laughs> <laughs> they're disappointed. They said, that's it. That's I quit. Just, this is I how it is. That's just how like it is. Throw Got it there like a wet fish, just like a yeah. dead fish. It's like, yeah, just, just that's it. handle it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. that's it. Suck it up. <laughs> We're going to keep yeah. going. Yeah. Where is our easy three-step plan, okay? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, maybe we need to. Well, it seems like we need to pick up the slack, right? We have an optimist <laughs> okay, with you yes, on board. So you we can... changed the system. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, you can keep me from becoming depressed and then together we can figure out some solution. <laughs> so, well, let's maybe start with some personal actions that can be done. In the second season that we did on plastic alternatives, yes. I read the book Material Value by Julia Goldstein, who is an author and who was an interview guest for Red to Green. And part of what I really took away from that was 
we know way less about toxicology of certain ingredients than we think. Ingredients and, mm -hmm. and just mm -hmm. compounds, because it's very hard to do studies thinking about, oh, if this compound is mixed with another compound and then it is heated to a certain degree, then what? There have been stories like with Teflon, the non-stick coating on pans hot, yeah. where they realized, oh, if it's too hot, then it's super toxic. And the regulatory bodies, they're always late. Uh, I think what I was listening to you, it reminded me, I think it's crucial to understand that before like the startups are being able to, if it's really an innovation and something new, some kind of meat replacement out of mycelium or some colorant produced with mycelium, they need to get the approval of the European Union like the novel food approval that allows the product to be used in food. Yeah. And one of the things they need to supply this kind of within the pr approval process is the toxicology study. And they can cost hefty amounts of money. Like mm -hmm. you're easily with a million, and I, like I heard three, four million even um, as amount for these kind of studies, which is really difficult for a startup to afford. Yeah. From the discussion I've had with other investors, most of the investors are not actually really aware of that process they need to go through when they invest mm. into new technologies, new products, new ingredients. Yeah, And so it just reminded of me, like, there are not a lot of things, at least perhaps even no things, that being just so allowed to being sold as food in the European Union and then being consumed. They always have to go through a certain step of evaluation and approval and so I'm very confident that we're not poisoning ourselves, not saying that there are already things in the food system that are poisonous. I'm talking about food. I'm not talking about chemicals like pesticides. I, I would say even if the regulation is good, it's not foolproof. And the, the she also says, for example, in, in France, there are 550 active ingredients for pesticides and 2,700 commercial formulations. And that's just the active ingredients. That doesn't include all the inert ingredients. Yeah which, as we know, can be way more harmful. Finally, I cannot run away from the necessity of, I think I'm just going to go always organic, really, <laughs> even though I'm in Lisbon now and it's sort of hard. <laughs> <laughs> because, yes, you can have certain pesticides in organic food, but it does limit it's it limited. to yeah. a list. Yeah. Do you have any other takeaways in terms of action? I think it's not an action. It had a change of attitude within the food industry and within some discussions I'm having with my yeah. colleagues. I gained a different attitude, a more serious attitude towards the truth and the necessity of charging for the truth and not for the profit only. To whom would you recommend the book, Marina? I think everybody who works in the biotech field. Ooh, everybody yeah. who is into alternative proteins. Hey, you listened to my last season on biotech? <laughs> this is for you. I'm sorry. All of the Shabam molecular farming enthusiasts, just to know. Hear your critics yeah. and be honest with you and look into these matters. Because it actually made me question, am I one of the am I one of the evil people? Am I one of those people that I would point at at buyer and be like, how don't you see what you're doing? You know? <laughs> and then they are like, no, I'm doing, I'm I'm helping the world and blah blah blah. And I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to be in a harsh discussion with myself. Am I in a bubble? Well, but that's good. I think that yeah, is good. good. That's a good, that's journalism, being questioning yourself and the perspective on the world. Should you lose your belief in the good of the food industry and in the good of the people? No, you shouldn't. Yeah. 
there are still honest people in the food industry, well aware what is good and what is bad. Well, well, and I'm pretty sure that a lot of them are listening to Red to Green. To round it off, here are a few of the main points to take away. The popular discussion regarding glyphosate-based herbicides focuses only on the main ingredient glyphosate. But actually, 50 to 75% of the product is made up of inert ingredients, which in a lot of jurisdictions don't need to be disclosed on the ingredient label. Some of the inert ingredients are much more harmful than glyphosate, and one needs to consider the whole formulation. Possibly, the discussion is intentionally framed to focus just on glyphosate, but we cannot prove that. Roundup is a highly potent and effective all-in-one herbicide. One shouldn't compare Roundup to air as an alternative. It is so successful because in combination with, for example, GMO maize or soy, it sort of wipes out everything. However, glyphosate-resistant weeds are emerging, so farmers now have to use glyphosate and maybe another pesticide on top. This development has possibly also been supported by an overuse. Because the main issue that we discussed in this episode is that Roundup was marketed as too safe. Early advertisements for Roundup were rather euphemistic, claiming that it poses no risk to people, animals or the environment, sometimes even claiming that it is as safe as table salt. The fines for these false advertisements have been and generally are too small in comparison to the company's advertisement spend and general profit. This structural flaw encourages companies to overpromise because there aren't sufficient repercussions and repeatedly assume and communicate that something is safe while regulation is catching up to realize that it isn't. Yes, there are pesticides, but you shouldn't reduce your vegetable intake fearing pesticides. It's like earning less money to pay less taxes. I recently spent about one and a half hours at a conference talking to employees from Bayer. And they told me that in certain areas, like in Germany, the regulation is cracking down on synthetic pesticides. Because of that, Bayer and other companies in the field are pushed to create biologicals, alternatives which are less invasive and at the moment also usually less productive. But maybe what we accept is what we get. And once regulation is harsh enough, we will find solutions which are safer for human health, for the environment and for farmers. What can you do? If you're an investor, alternatives to pesticides are certainly an area to look into and possibly invest into some startups there. Otherwise, we should practice what we expect Monsanto executives to do. To look at ourselves critically and really ask, are we doing the right thing? Not constantly, but once in a while and in a healthy way. Oh, and remember to check out the Patreon page at patreon.com slash red to green to get my full highlights of the book all underlined with the most important points. It really looks like this is a confidential document. <laughs> you can decide to support Red to Green with a donation if you feel like it. Patreon.com slash red to green. 
Thank you so much for listening. A special thanks to Celeste Gupta as well as Anne Reshetnya for double-checking some of our sources and content. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. <laughs>